0: Continuing education credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. Check out cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information. The Cribsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host. Welcome back to the Cribsiders. Hi. Hey, Chris. I'm here too. It's just me and you right now. So it's kind of, uh, Intimate. kind of missed having a producer. Yeah. You <laughs> didn't have the extra spot. We're just hanging out. Yes. Just two people learning about some medicine. We had a great recording today, didn't we, Chris?
1: Oh, it was great. It was great. Was we great. had a wonderful guest. She was just so fun to talk to.
0: Yeah, she rocked. She was a rock star. Dr. Susan Lipset. She came to talk about pneumonia. But before we do that, why don't you give us a little introduction to the show, Chris?
1: Well, we are the Pediatric Medicine Podcast. We interview leading experts in the fields to bring you clinical pearls, practice changing knowledge and answer linking questions about core topics in pediatric medicine.
0: We had a breathtaking conversation with our guest, Dr. Susan Lipsett. She is a academic pediatric emergency medicine physician up in Boston. She's passionate about researching how we can better diagnose infection condition in kids and thus decrease unnecessary antibiotic use. She loves teaching but hates rounding. Which is why she's an excellent academic emergency medicine physician. When she's not working, she likes to spend her time doing outdoor activities in a COVID mask, playing on the beach with her nieces and nephew, having Zoom game nights with friends, and laying on the couch eating cheese and watching endless reruns of Office. (laughs) She rocks. She was fun, she was great. She teaches us when to suspect pediatric pneumonia, how to triage cases that warrant outpatient treatment or inpatient admission, and how to address common complications. Without further ado, let's get to the content. Let's do it.
1: Well, this episode, you're going to pneumonia more about
0: afterwards. I tried. I'm sorry. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> We're gonna, yeah. yeah we'll, we'll, we'll take it. We'll take it. <laughs> Dr. Lipsit, thank you so much for joining us. We're very excited to have you. Do you mind? We try to talk to all guests by a first name basis. Is it okay if we call you Susan? Yeah, that's great. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to start the episode by hearing a little bit more about you, letting our audience know who you are. And as a first question, can you describe yourself? Sometimes we do it in the way a one-liner presentation would be in the hospital, if you don't mind.
2: Sure. So I am a pediatric emergency medicine physician and a clinical researcher at Boston Children's Hospital. I'm going over a line here. My main research focuses respiratory infections, and I have a broader interest in how we can reduce unnecessary antibiotic use in kids. In terms of interests and achievements outside of work, I think that's where I really shine. I just bought a Nintendo Switch and a Peloton, Amazing. and I'm currently going on about four months of putting on pants with no buttons or zippers, so I feel really <laughs> good about that.
0: That's incredible. The uh, Switch-Peloton combination is a good combination.
2: It's huge. I highly recommend it.
1: We should totally ask her about like our pick of the week. What games are you playing on the Switch right now?
2: It's a little embarrassing because I am 39 years old, but I'm quite addicted to Animal Crossing. So if you know any 9-year-olds who are looking to sell turnips at my store, please uh, pass my name along. <laughs> nice.
1: Oh, my my son is 8, so he'll he'll definitely have
0: some for you.
2: Perfect. We can talk offline.
0: Who who's your favorite Peloton trainer?
2: I'm pretty new to the game, but I love, I think it's Hannah Frankson and then Allie Love.
0: Ally Love. Yeah. I, I, big fan. it's been a while since I've done Peloton, but Ali Love was, I was a big fan of Ally Love.
2: So uh, good. So I inspirational.
1: Heard, I heard Federer's on Peloton. Is that right? Really? Yeah. As a trainer? Oh, wow. No, no, as like, like another person that, oh, uh, uh, that's probably true.
2: It's <laughs> weird that he and I don't show up in the same screen. We must yeah. be like slightly different <laughs> physical abilities, yeah. but I'm sure I'll get there. <laughs>
1: So my question that I often like to ask is what is your favorite failure and what did you learn from it?
2: Ooh, that's a really great question to ask me. I've had a lot of good ones. Probably my favorite was when I was a junior resident, I was on an overnight and I had a two-year-old boy with a large facial laceration, but it actually looked like it was very amenable to glue. I had had very little experience with glue. So I asked the attending of tips. She's like, you'll be fine. You just click the thing. You open it, you squeeze, you go, you're fine. I was like, okay. So I go in the room, kid's doing great. He has a little bit of midazolam on board, hold the lock together. I start gluing my hands, like a little bit slippery. The glue's kind of getting everywhere. So I thought to myself, you know, I think I could get more traction if I just take my glove off. So I took my glove off and then I actually had a much better grip. So I'm holding this laceration together. Everything looks great. And about 30, 35 seconds in, I think to myself, huh, you know, this glue is working really well. I wonder how the glue is going to know not to stick to my fingers. Oh, no. So lo and behold, time is up. Everything's dry. And I go to remove my hand and doesn't go anywhere. And I just will never forget this moment where this kid who's probably no older than two kind of looks in my eyes and I look in his eyes. And it's like, we both realize at the same moment what's happening. And he just starts screaming and the laceration opens right up. And I pry my fingers off with sheer force. Half his eyebrow comes with it. He's screaming. I'm crying inside. We're both sweating. So I go outside and kind of just say to my attending, you know, it didn't go so well. There's glue everywhere. He's missing half his eyebrow. And she said, that's okay. Just go try again. And I said, no, you know, I think I'm going to need you to take this one over. That was memorable. His mom was incredibly understanding. She was also a healthcare professional. She told me months later, his eyebrow grew back. Uh, And yes, I think as a learner, it taught me to just be very explicit when I need help and don't know anything. And I think as a teacher, it taught me to just be really, really kind and supportive to trainees when they're doing anything for the first time, even if it seems so obvious. And just to remember what it was like to make a mistake and how bad that feels.
0: That's a great story. That, it's, so it's a good. Quality level story. I, the imagery I can, I can, it hasn't <laughs> happened to me, but I could so easily see something like that happening to me. Even the detail of being sweaty, because I was sweating all procedures. And like when it gets nerve wracking, I'm done. And yeah, yeah. Oh.
2: Years later, it's a lot funnier than it was then. I okay. bet,
1: I'm sure. Well, I'm sure. I guess we can't top that story. We don't have to talk about pneumonia. We should just call it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it. It was, <laughs> that yeah. Great. A provider narratives, and then we're done. <laughs> um, we'll submit this to the Nocturnus. Yeah. <laughs> um, amazing.
0: Well, why don't we go ahead and start with the case, Chris? Does that sound all right?
1: Yes. I w- how about you read this one this time?
0: Okay. We have wonderful names from our fantastic producer on this episode, Max. So, all the oil, <laughs> Alva oil? Alva, oil. Alva Oil? Alva Oil? Alva Oil. I think it's supposed to be alveoli, but we're going to go with it. Alva Oil is a 16-month-old female. She has no past medical history, but she comes to you overnight in the emergency department with three days of nasal congestion, cough, low-grade fever, and decreased appetite. Her vitals, she has a fever at 38.2, heart rate of 125, normal blood pressure, respiratory rate of 38, but is adding 95% on room air. She appears a bit tired, but is otherwise well-appearing on exam. She does have some mild subcostal retractions, and when you take a listen to her lungs, she has a very focal right basilar crackles um, on the right lung, uh, but has good cap refill. So when thinking about this patient who's really just coming in with fever, cough, and a focal finding... Um, I want to use it as a jumping-off point to talk about what is exactly community-acquired pneumonia, and and this example does, sh- does this patient meet criteria? What what is criteria? How do we define community-acquired pneumonia?
2: Great. That's actually a really good question. There's not a clear universal definition of community-acquired pneumonia, which I think is one thing that makes it tough, but really at its most basic, community-acquired pneumonia is any infection of the lower airways that's acquired outside of the hospital setting. And I think what's important to note is that that term really includes not just bacterial causes, but viral, fungal, mycobacterial causes as well. But that said, I feel like usually when we're talking about a kid with community-acquired pneumonia, we are typically talking about a kid in whom we presume bacterial pneumonia.
0: That's really helpful. And I often think, is it a clinical diagnosis? Is it something where imaging is necessary? You know, what, what are the, the characteristics that we can put in the ICD-10 code that this is a, a pneumonia?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there are certainly signs and symptoms that make us think of pneumonia. So this kid is febrile. She has a cough. Which is a common symptom of pneumonia. She's tachypnic; She has some retraction, so some increased work of breathing. And she's very mildly hypoxemic. So her SAT is 95% in room air. So certainly not dangerous, but showing that something is probably going on in her lower airways. And then we actually hear crackles kind of focally on her lung exam. So those are all certainly suggestive of pneumonia. I think what's just so hard in kids specifically is that Viruses and bacteria can cause such similar symptoms um, in kids with lower airway disease. And so we talk a lot, and guidelines actually emphasize the diagnosis of pneumonia based on clinical grounds. I think in practice, that ends up being really tough. There are actually a number of studies, and there's a pretty good systematic review that was published in JAMA PEDS a few years ago, actually looking at the predictive value of single signs and symptoms in predicting bacterial pneumonia, and really found that there aren't a lot of great signs and symptoms that are predictive. So things like fever and tachypnea actually were not independently associated with pneumonia diagnosis. And the only things that kind of independently made bacterial pneumonia more likely were hypoxemia and increased work of breathing. And in practice, we see a lot of kids who come in with asthma exacerbations from viral illnesses who look very similar to kids with pneumonia. I think one of the things, and we can talk about this now or later, that is really interesting to me is kind of what is the role of ancillary studies like chest x-ray in diagnosing pneumonia.
1: So actually that that is sort of my, my next question is like, what type of further workup is needed? And does it actually make a difference if you plan on treating the patient as an outpatient or inpatient, what exactly that workup is going to be?
2: Yeah. So I would say there's some debate about this. If you look at IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of America, and the Pediatric Infectious Diseases Society guidelines for pneumonia, they will say that especially in outpatients, they recommend um, specifically against things like chest X-ray or other blood tests. I think that their reasoning really is that X-ray is nonspecific, that even infiltrates on X-ray could be bacterial or could be viral, and this may actually lead providers to use antibiotics for viral infections. I feel a little bit differently, and at my institution, we actually recommend chest radiography for kids who come in with suspected pneumonia, and that's for a few reasons. First of all, like we talked about, our physical exam isn't great, and we actually know that even kids with focal findings like crackles on lung exam may very well not have radiographic pneumonia, and I see a lot of kids who come in with fever, tachypnea, and crackles in whom the chest x-ray is negative. And I actually was involved with one study where we looked at kids with suspected pneumonia who got x-rays performed. Those x-rays were negative and they went home without antibiotics and we followed them for a couple of weeks. And the vast majority, so 99% of those kids were covered without antibiotics. And so that told us that chest x-ray, when it's negative, is actually probably pretty good at excluding bacterial pneumonia. And so kind of the approach that my institution has taken is that we may actually be able to reduce unnecessary antibiotic use if we systematically x-ray kids in whom we're suspicious for pneumonia, and then we find out those x-rays are negative. All of that, I think, said, I think there are a lot of downsides to chest x-ray too. So you could get an x-ray in a kid who has these symptoms, and then the last person at the pack station was eating a donut and smudged the screen, and you think you see an infiltrate. So there can be lots of little things you see on x-ray that may lead you to need to prescribe antibiotics when they're not really warranted.
1: Are there other types of imaging that we could consider? Is there any use of like point of care ultrasound in in like the PZD or urgent care, or maybe in the pediatric office if they're trained to do this?
2: That's a, a great question. I think lung ultrasound is incredibly interesting. And I think that in the realm of pediatric pneumonia, we're probably still pretty early in figuring out how it fits into a diagnostic algorithm. I do think it has the obvious advantage of sparing radiation. I think that we still don't know exactly how well it correlates with true bacterial pneumonia, which is a limitation of x-ray as well. My guess is over the next five or 10 years we'll probably learn a lot more about how it correlates and how it can be useful.
1: So as an outpatient pediatrician and I have a patient who looks you know mildly sick but not horrible and I'm contemplating antibiotics, should I do that extra step to try to get them scheduled for a chest x-ray and then follow that up or Or what would what would you suggest if I'm not in the ER?
2: Yeah. I think I am very lucky being in the ER because we have x-ray right down the hall. And all you do is send the kid down, you know, in their Johnny, they get their x-ray, they come back to their room. It takes five minutes to do. I think when you're in an outpatient office, it can be very different. And you may be in an office where x-ray is readily available, or you may be in an office where the family has to drive 30 minutes and pay for parking and get that x-ray. And so I think it depends a little bit in what practice setting you're in. And I think like many things, there are pros and cons that you weigh. So, you know, if you systematically x-rays in these kids, you may decrease the antibiotics that you're using. There's some evidence to show that you may increase it, or it may depend on kind of your practice as a provider or the family's preferences. And so that's an area where shared decision-making could also be useful.
0: And to summarize, it sounds like the chest x-ray can be helpful to rule out of pneumonia. Are there other thoughts in this kind of diagnostic workup in the clinic or in the ED that can help point to a pneumonia, whether it's physical exam findings? I love the article you mentioned of looking at fever and tachypnea. And I, I remember, I forget if it was that article, There is an article that talks about the lack of tachypnea in children under age two is a very negative predictive value for ruling out pneumonia. But are there other physical exam findings or labs or other things that should help us determine if we should be ordering the chest X-ray or not to begin with?
2: Yeah, so you're correct. So I believe it was that article that actually showed that lack of tachypnea had a very high negative predictive value for pneumonia. So certainly if there is a kid who is not tachypneic and does not have increased work of breathing, and and also who doesn't have hypoxemia, that probably makes pneumonia less likely. This meta-analysis didn't show it, but there are a fair number of other studies that have shown that the presence of wheeze is actually negatively correlated with bacterial pneumonia. And so- And that kind of makes sense intuitively, right? Wheezing is often caused by viral illnesses. And so the majority of those kids are probably going to have x-rays that show peribronchial cuffing or kind of more diffuse viral findings. So that's certainly something I use in my decision making. There is some emerging evidence about procalcitonin, and that's really, I would say, a hot test now for lots of things, both in adults and kids. And so I think there's some evidence starting to build about the use of procalcitonin to predict bacterial pneumonia in kids. There was a study a few years ago that looked at procalcitonin in kids with typical bacterial pneumonia, atypical bacterial pneumonia, so with pathogens like mycoplasma and viral pneumonia, and found that those with typical bacterial pneumonia had significantly higher procalcitonins. That said, that requires a blood draw. So going back to the question of outpatient care, you know, if that's the only reason you're drawing blood and it's not perfect, that may not be the best kind of test to pursue but it's something you can think about, especially in a kid in whom you're drawing blood already as just one more data point to push you in one direction or another. White blood cell count, you know, we always endlessly study as a marker of bacterial infections. It's okay, it's not great. You know, There are certain viruses, I think adenovirus is one of them that can cause really high white blood cell counts. And so while in really, really young kids, it might be more predictive of pneumonia, it's probably not good enough to get on its own in order to help you decide.
0: Chris and I, I won't say that we love procalcitonin, but we love talking about procalcitonin.
1: <laughs> we ask about it all the time.
2: <laughs> I think procalcitonin is so cool. And we just got in house procalcitonin at my Ooh. hospital last year. And I'm a huge fan of it. And I love the idea that we can start to figure out more about where it fits in and care of kids.
1: Are you routinely ordering procal now that it's in house? And are you using other types of inflammatory markers as well?
2: In the, I am routinely ordering procalcitonin in lots of things. I do not routinely order it in kids with potential pneumonia. I tend to get very few labs in kids with suspected pneumonia. One of the things I think this brings up is the question of blood culture. And so, you know, while the IDSA does not recommend lab work routinely in outpatients with pneumonia, I think they do generally recommend chest X-ray and potentially some blood work in inpatients. And so if there's a kid coming in, who it needs an IV for hydration purposes, then I often will send a CBC and or a procalcitonin just to help us gather more data about the likelihood of this being bacterial. Blood cultures, I think we have pretty much put to rest, are not useful in the care of children that are admitted with pneumonia that is uncomplicated if the kid is not critically ill. So there's actually a lot of good evidence to show now that if you draw a blood culture in a kid with uncomplicated pneumonia, your chances of getting a contaminant are actually significantly higher than your chances of getting a pathogen. And actually, with a rate of bacteremia of about 2%, most of those pathogens are bacteria that would be susceptible to our first-line treatment anyway. So it is very unlikely you would get a pathogen that would change your treatment.
1: Talking about pathogens. So how often are you doing testing for other types of pathogens, whether it's flu, you know, a general viral panel, which may be different from institution to institution, as well as looking at further testing for Shep pneumonia or mycoplasma. How often are you doing those types of tests?
2: So that's actually something I'm incredibly interested in. In my institution personally, we actually do very little uh, testing either for direct bacterial pathogen identification or for viral pathogen identification. I, As you alluded to, there's a huge variation between hospitals. Some hospitals do a lot of that for cohorting purposes. There's actually been some good stuff written about how use of viral testing may actually decrease the workup that we do looking for bacterial causes of illness. I suspect that Now, amidst the COVID pandemic, hospitals will probably more uniformly start using viral testing. And I'm personally very interested to see how that may change our care of kids with respiratory illness. In terms of the question of bacterial identification, so there was a a lot of the pneumonia data we talk about now comes from this big study called the EPIC study, which basically over the last 10 years has had a lot of papers come out of it. It looked at i think over 2000 kids who were hospitalized with pneumonia at several sites in the US in kind of the early 2010 to 2012 range and they did a lot of cool bacterial identification so not just blood cultures but blood pcr respiratory pcr pleural fluid sampling and they were able to identify that really the vast majority of pneumonia in kids is viral and then of the bacterial causes really it was mycoplasma and strep pneumo that we saw and i think that was hugely informative that you know, we treat most of these kids with antibiotics, but it is so rarely actually bacterial. We just don't have a good way to know at the time.
0: This is great. This is also very reassuring that it is rehashing some of the things we talked about in a things we do for no reason high value care episode. <laughs> and so this is great spaced learning for anyone who listens to the "The things we do for no reason episode.
1: When we talked about asthma, no, asthma, no, I can't, I can't see it. Asmonia. asmonia. Asmonia.
0: We talked about asmonia. Um, asmonia. It's a big one. Asmonia. Um, Great. And so with this patient who had been the 16-month-old, fever, coughing, focal findings, presuming we don't do any of this workup, when do we know how to triage whether this patient should be admitted or is fine to go home or should we be bringing them back the next day? How do we kind of triage follow-up for this patient?
2: That is such an important question. As an ER doctor, I asked the trainees this basically during their presentation. What do you want to do with this patient? Where do you think their path is? There are published guidelines kind of outlining when you want to think about hospitalization for a kid with community-acquired pneumonia that are quite good. I try to simplify it, as I do in many things, into a couple questions. Number one, do they need something that we can't give them at home? Do they need oxygen? Do they need hydration? Are they vomiting and they need IV fluids? And then two, do they have a significant risk of worsening? And so I think a lot of that encompasses the guidelines. So. Criteria for admission would include if a kid is really tachypneic or has very high work of breathing to the point where you think they may escalate to some type of non-invasive ventilation. Are they hypoxemic? And the guidelines kind of give a range of below ninety to ninety-two percent on room air, where you may consider admitting them and giving them supplemental oxygen. Are they dehydrated? Do they look really sick? And then thinking about, you know, does this kid have comorbidities that make them at higher risk for developing severe pneumonia? And does their family have a car? Do they have easy access to get back to the hospital? Are they able to fill their antibiotic prescription? Do they have a PCP? So I think all those things are important to think about. Thinking about this child, she sounds like she would likely do well with care at home. I would probably suggest giving her some antipyretics, giving her a popsicle, making sure she doesn't vomit because kids love to vomit when they're sick and just watching her, you know, for an hour or two and making sure she doesn't have any worsening trajectory.
1: Now, does your calculus change depending on the age of the child?
2: So there are some people who would advocate and actually guidelines do advocate thinking about admitting children to the hospital who have suspected bacterial pneumonia who are quite young. So, you know, below three, below six months of age. I would say a lot of this just depends on the way the child looks. I think that young infants with true low bar bacterial pneumonia that is likely pneumococcal are probably not going to look well enough to go home. I would say I don't routinely admit every under three month old with pneumonia that I see in the ER. If they're looking well and they otherwise meet these criteria, I'm often comfortable discharging them home, but it is important to think about them in a different way sphere, just because they are incompletely immunized. They're little, they like to make liars out of us. Sometimes they'll mm-hmm. turn around yeah. really quickly.
1: And in your chart biopsy or history gathering from parent, do you routinely ask about immunizations if they're up to date? And if that changes your decision-making as well, if they're behind on their immunizations, especially for their pneumonia vaccines?
2: we do routinely ask it and that's another thing you know we always drill into the people rotating coming in the P.D.E.D. is they always hate hearing it you know is the child vaccinated but it is really i think important in our calculus i think the advent of pneumococcal vaccine has really decreased the amount of pneumococcal disease we're seeing it turns out that you know pneumococcus is very susceptible to amoxicillin which i'm sure we'll talk about is our first line treatment but we also think about things like h flu and so we may actually be more likely to treat a kid with a broader antibiotic if they're incompletely immunized, because there's a good chance that they may have resistance to amoxicillin. So that that's the way it would come into play for me. Fortunately, I don't run into it that often, but it is a very important thing to think about.
0: So if we're in an outpatient setting, and let's say someone presents with focal findings, but is well-appearing, we would admit them if they're ill-appearing, but if not, presumably we'd send them home. When would you consider outpatient antibacterial treatment for community-acquired pneumonia? If ever, if they're, if they're well-appearing enough to go home, would we say that this is likely viral, no antibiotics? Or is there something that says they're not sick enough to be admitted, but we still need to be treating for a bacterial pneumonia, presumably, much, which presents much worse, as you mentioned?
2: Yeah, I would say this is where things get really tough. You know, you read you read guidelines and they often make it sound so easy. They say, you know, the vast majority of pneumonia, especially in kids under five, is viral. And so only treat those kids if you think it's bacterial. Well, how do we know it's bacterial? Right now, you know, in our mainstream workup of kids with suspected pneumonia, we just don't have great ways of knowing. And I'm really hopeful that in my career and in my lifetime, that will change I think that, yes, the vast majority of pathogens in kids with pneumonia, especially in those under five, is viral. But in kids with pneumonia who are under five, their most likely bacterial pathogen is strep pneumo. Kids can get really sick from pneumococcal pneumonia. And there are certainly cases of kids who die from pneumococcal pneumonia. And you can see that from looking at other parts of the world where there are either incomplete vaccines or you know not as easy presentation to care. And so I would say that the majority of providers, at least in the acute care setting, who see kids with a relatively good presentation for pneumonia will treat them with antibiotics. And, you know, I think that is very likely leading to antibiotic overuse. I think in my mind, what I can do right now is try to treat the kids I think might have bacterial pneumonia with antibiotics, but try to use the right antibiotics for the right duration. So at least I'm not making things worse in that way.
1: I'm Dave Stukas. Do you wanna learn more about pediatric asthma? Do you wanna learn how you can use simple tools such as the Asthma Predictive Index to try to figure out which children will or will not have persistent asthma throughout their childhood? Do you wanna learn how to take a comprehensive environmental assessment and discuss factors that can impact asthma management with families? Have you ever wondered what the difference is between asthma severity or asthma control? Do you wanna learn how the new genus strategies have turned the asthma world upside down? To learn more, join me for the Cripsiders episode on pediatric asthma. So I guess that's the next question. What's the right <laughs> hand of body Spoiler yeah. alert!
2: Let's get to it. This is something I feel really passionately about. So I'm so glad you asked me. The guideline recommended treatment for kids with community-acquired pneumonia is amoxicillin. And this is for a few reasons. So Number one, this is targeted towards treatment of strep pneumonia, of, of pneumococcal pneumonia, which as we've talked about again, is of bacterial causes, one of the most common. Amoxicillin is actually really effective at treating strep pneumo and It does vary by region, but for instance, in my region, 97% of strep pneumo isolates are susceptible to amoxicillin. So there's very little resistance that a high dose of amoxicillin can't overcome. We talk specifically about high dose amoxicillin because for those of you who are closer to medical school, you remember this concept of the penicillin binding protein, where basically it's a resistance mechanism that strep pneumo has that you can overcome by just giving a ton of amoxicillin. And so we give, we talk about 90 milligrams per kilogram per day. There's some debate about whether to divide that BID or TID. I think kind of the ID purists would say TID has the best pharmacokinetics for extending killing time for strep pneumo. I think what's really important about that is that. Actually, there are studies that have been published very recently that show that of ambulatory children who are treated with CAP, almost 50% are getting treated with azithromycin and another quarter are getting treated with cephalosporins. Now, interestingly, and this is something I didn't learn until recently, Oral cephalosporins, like ceftonir, for example, the third generation cephalosporin, actually doesn't kill strep pneumo as well as amoxicillin. So I always used to think of it as, hey, there's no reason to use something so broad. We don't need that. But it actually turns out that it's just not very well absorbed, and the pharmacokinetics of it just don't lead to as good killing of strep pneumo, especially more resistant strep pneumo, as is amoxicillin. So not only is it broader and probably leads to resistance, but it probably actually isn't doing as good a job for that one bacterial pathogen you wanna target. And azithromycin certainly has some pretty poor coverage. So a significant proportion of strep pneumo isolates in the US are not susceptible to azithro, are resistant. And so I just wanna make sure that when we are treating kids for bacterial pneumonia, we're really treating them with the right agents. Cause then we're kind of not helping the bacterial pneumonia itself and we're also leading to resistance and side effects.
1: So I'm jumping on a little bit in terms of inpatient treatments, but I don't want to get into too much, but I think I read, maybe it was the IDSA guidelines look, talking about when they're treat if you're treating uh, unvaccinated children and the inpatient going with a third ge- generation cephalosporin, I think that was, it, would you consider that sort of thought process when you're talking about trying to treat as outpatient for patients who are not immunized?
2: Yeah. So um, you're exactly right. And interestingly, IV ceftriaxone has very good coverage of strep pneumo. And I think that's where some of the the misjudgment comes from is that we think, okay, IV ceftriaxone has great coverage, then PO, third generation cephalosporins are also going to have great coverage. And it just unfortunately turns out they don't. I do think thinking about using something like ceftonir or a a broader antibiotic in a kid who's incompletely vaccinated makes sense. I don't have a ton of experience with treating those kids, again, fortunately, and so I don't have a lot of anecdotal experience built up, but I do think it would be reasonable. I think the one thing to consider is that the, the stuff you get with that coverage, so you get more Axella coverage and you get better coverage of resistant H flu, those are probably less likely pathogenic um, in pneumonia. They're probably less likely to be the cause. And so you could make an argument for still prescribing amoxicillin in those kids to really get the best pneumococcal coverage.
1: And what's your approach for penicillin allergy?
2: Yeah, so um, penicillin allergy, I love the quote. No one can see this on the podcast, but I love the quotes you put around it because that's also a passion of mine, a very hot topic these days. With kids with penicillin allergy, and hopefully we'll know in the next few years, the kids who really have penicillin allergy... You can use cephalosporins, and in, and I believe those are kind of the recommended treatment second line for kids with penicillin allergy. You can also think about azithromycin, but again, you're getting a lot of strep pneumo resistance once you think about azithromycin, and so you just have to be really careful about who you're prescribing it to.
0: And a couple other points that I have learned and really took away was the azithromycin, one of the arguments was that it would have mycoplasma coverage if it were an atypical pneumonia. But the truth is that azithromycin, my understanding, does not actually have that much of a clinical improvement in patients that have mycoplasma.
2: Yeah, so mycoplasma is really tough. It's tough because it actually is probably the most common cause, bacterial cause of pneumonia in kids. So that EPIC study I talked about before showed that it was, at least of the pathogens that were detected, was the most common bacterial pathogen in kids with pneumonia. What's hard is there are some studies that actually show that a lot of kids that are asymptomatic harbor mycoplasma. We have a really poor understanding of what actually its role in causing disease is. And there's also a lot of conflicting evidence about whether macrolide treatment actually helps kids that have mycoplasma pneumonia. And so, you know, again, the guidelines, I think, based on a lack of evidence, are understandably vague in this scenario. They say you should provide macrolides to kids in whom you suspect atypical pneumonia. But the truth is that there aren't good, reliable signs and symptoms that distinguish kids with atypical pneumonia. And a lot of institutions don't have access to pathogen testing to detect mycoplasma. So that's another area where I'm really hopeful in the next five or 10 years we have a lot more answers. Right now, we just have a ton of questions.
0: I can't help myself to also point out the, the- the. The med Pearl, and Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, but the adult pneumonia guidelines recently came out and switched from azithromycin being first line to amoxicillin. So a great example of internists following the path that pediatricians (laughs) have led in this field.
2: That's actually fascinating. We we do see young adults in our ER, actually very many young adults. And I always feel funny when they turn 18 and I start to think, what should I really be treating with them with for their pneumonia? So that's helpful to know.
1: So let's get back to our case here. So you decide in this, in, this, in this patient, maybe that, you know, good enough to go home, but maybe we'll, we'll, we'll prescribe amoxicillin. But say 72 hours later, they come back. Mom doesn't think that um, the kid's getting any better, still, um, still febrile, now setting 88% on room air. You know, she's ill-appearing, has subcostal and super, superclavicular contractions, belly breathing, and still has the right basilar crackles. So um, would you consider this a treatment failure of CAP?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I would. Treatment failure in general is defined as either no improvement in symptoms or worsening of symptoms after 48 to 72 hours of therapy. So clearly she's, you know, 72 hours out and it seems like getting worse. The one caveat I'd give is that, yes, we're on a pneumonia podcast, but you know, these kids can be really hard to parse out when they're sitting in front of you. And her presentation also makes me wonder about viral etiologies and whether bronchospasm could be involved as well. So we will often see kids who are being treated for pneumonia, who when you see them actually are belly breathing, retracting, have a prolonged expiratory phase, and either have frank wheezing or just have kind of decreased aeration everywhere. And those are kids in whom before I really say, hey, I think they have bacterial pneumonia that's not responding or that is a treatment failure, I may try some bronchodilators to see if that makes a dramatic improvement. Because the the failure may not be that the antibiotic was wrong. It may be that they have some viral pathogen that's leading to worsening disease.
1: So they come back, you've decided that there's a treatment failure. So thinking about the things that we did in terms of workup previously, and maybe things that you might not have done previously, is there any specific things that you would want to make sure that you get done now as you're working her up for this failed management?
2: If she didn't, or even if she did have an x-ray, I think at the time of diagnosis, I would think about getting an x-ray at this point. I think the big thing that we want to look at is evidence of any complications of pneumonia. So we think about things like empyema or a necrotizing pneumonia. And so in any kid who's kind of undergoing treatment for pneumonia and then all of a sudden has this decline, it's important to make sure there's no complication there, because that really would kind of call for a, a branch point in your management. And like I said, I would really consider carefully where there's evidence of bronchospasm as well. And then I would think about you know treating her hypoxemia with supplemental oxygen uh, and potentially giving her some IV fluids as well. In this
0: patient, let's say we get the follow-up chest x-ray, and sure enough, we see pleural effusions and a worsening opacity. Can you talk about some of the complications of pneumonia and what the next steps would be?
2: Yeah. So basically we talk about complicated pneumonia and that's really a spectrum of disease. So that includes pleural effusions and specifically empyema, which is basically a pocket of pus in the pleural cavity that often has what we call kind of loculation. So it has kind of these fibrinous walls that create these little cavities within the pus pocket itself. We talk about necrotizing pneumonia, which is just when the actual lung tissue is becoming necrotic. We talk about lung abscess. So an abscess within the lung itself. And then there's this thing called bronchopulmonary fistula, which I've never really seen, but sounds really, really bad and is luckily very rare. And it's basically when the infection just erodes through the epithelium of the airways or the lung parenchyma and actually forms a connection with the pleural cavity. So this can actually lead to a tension pneumothorax or it can lead to a big uh, collection of infection in, in the chest wall, essentially, in the pleural cavity. Interestingly, since pneumococcal vaccination has become more widespread. Although the incidence of pneumococcal disease has decreased, the rates of complicated pneumonia seem to have increased. And so it's something that we're seeing kind of not uncommonly in the acute care setting.
0: And when we see a pleural effusion or some type of fluid buildup in the lung, how do we determine whether it's a peridemonic effusion or empyema or lung abscess? What diagnostic imaging is used?
2: So we typically do a few things. I think chest x-ray is the first, the the start. Lung ultrasound, we had talked about that earlier, uh, can be incredibly useful in a kid with a pleural effusion. They often will image the kid laying down and moving around and see if that effusion kind of layers or see whether it seems to be stuck in a certain place implying that there are loculations and they can actually sometimes see those kind of septations on the ultrasound. You can also consider getting a decubitus x-ray again to see if it layers, although I would say that in practice the institutions that use lung ultrasound probably just go straight to ultrasound instead of getting a decubitus film. We pretty rarely will use CT. I think we usually reserve that for a kid in whom the x-ray is very suggestive of a lung abscess or in whom is getting sicker despite therapy
0: and follow-up question is will we see a loculated empyema or even a pleural effusion what are our net steps and how urgent is that step if I'm if I'm the resident on at 2 a.m. and I somehow discover without an attending that this <laughs> is a perinamonic effusion or an empyema can I wait until morning or what's the urgent what are net steps and what's the level of urgency I'd say
2: First of all, great job discovering something before the attending was involved. That always feels really good, especially (laughs) when when you're on overnights as a junior resident. So I think it depends a little bit. There are certainly kids with pneumonia who have small effusions who look totally fine. And actually kids with very small effusions can often just be treated as an outpatient with typical antibiotics. I think what you're talking about is probably the kid that has a larger effusion, usually something that's starting to encroach on, you know, half the chest wall or more. These kids usually look sicker. They're They are probably hypoxemic. They often have significant fevers and they may have increased work of breathing. Um, Those kids probably need more urgent care. I would say that they are going to need an IV. They'll need broad spectrum antibiotics, which we can talk about, and they'll need further imaging to determine what type of intervention they need. Most kids with a significant empyema will end up with a drainage procedure because they're often not going to get better just with antibiotics alone.
0: Someone once taught me never let the sun set on a pleural effusion. Chris is pointing to me, is that?
1: I've heard the same thing, uh, but definitely I've heard it more on
0: the adult side. Maybe that's more on the adult side. Is that something uh, that you've come across like, a pleural effusion, like, is it like, yo, we need to sit this quick before it gets loculated or "Eh, they're fine, kids are resilient.
2: I also learned that same thing. There were a few things I learned to never let the sun set on and that was definitely one of them. I would say that, so the kid is not going to go home if they have a significant pleural effusion. So you're not going to send him out of the hospital. They are probably going to get antibiotics pretty quickly. And you will probably be actively working to get them some type of procedure. I don't think that procedure always needs to happen, you know, within one or two hours. But I think getting, and again, we'll talk about the types of procedures they could get, but thinking about putting in a chest tube, thinking about calling the surgeons is important. And my guess is a kid with a significant empyema, probably within the span of 12 hours or so, will have some type of drainage procedure.
0: I admitted a patient overnight and in the morning on round said they had a pleural effusion. And the person said, "This you're never supposed to let the sun set on a pleural effusion. And I said, jotes on you. They came to me and it was already dark. I was gonna say
1: that that was my comment. It was like two AM, the sun's already set. So it wasn't
0: your
2: fault. Nope. You're off the hook. Yeah. I think it's also one of those like one of those like hot button topics. So like how pediatricians hate when people say a kid looks lethargic. But I kind of feel like, well, sometimes a kid really does look lethargic. So, you know, sometimes the sun will set on a pleural effusion, but as long as you have a plan and you're kind of working towards some type of procedure, I don't think you need to drop everything and run in the room and immediately throw in a chest tube. You have time to grab your attending.
0: I like that.
1: So Susan, I I just want to clarify one definition. So we're talking about a significant pleural effusion. What what counts as a significant pleural effusion?
2: Yeah. So the way that guidelines kind of split this up is according to size, and they talk about the degree of opacification of the hemithorax. So they define a small effusion as an opacity that takes up less than a quarter of the hemithorax. In general, those kids are probably well appearing and don't have a lot of respiratory compromise. And so those kids will likely be treated with antibiotics without kind of attempts to drain the pleural fluid or any chest tube. When you get to greater than quarter of the hemithorax, you start to think about treatment. And so they define a moderate effusion as one that occupies greater than a quarter of, but less than a half of the hemithorax on upright imaging. If those kids are symptomatic and have significant respiratory compromise, then most would agree that those kids should undergo some type of drainage. That procedure could be a chest tube with fibrinolytics to break up loculations, or it could be a VATS, which is video-assisted thoroscopic surgery performed by a surgeon. And there's pluses or minuses to both. With kids with a moderate effusion, if they're not in distress, some would advocate for just treating them with antibiotics. In my experience, most kids who have an effusion that starts to approach half of the hemithorax are usually in enough distress to warrant some type of drainage procedure. And then universally, kids with an effusion that occupies greater than half of the hemithorax are almost always going to undergo drainage procedure in either a chest tube or a VATS for treatment, in addition to the broad-spectrum antibiotics.
0: I don't know if this is the experience at all cash branches, but where I previously worked, if you... Had a effusion Friday at 2:30 p.m. Interventional radiology would come and do this beautiful pigtail VATS procedure, and it would be so nice. And if it was Friday at 5:05 p.m., <laughs> surgery would come with this PVC pipe <laughs> and just throw in the chest tube. And, um, both provided wonderful care, and I don't mean to undermine them, but you could tell what time the patient's chest tube was based on the dressing.
2: Yes, there can certainly be variations. There are many ways to treat an effusion, and there are pluses and minuses to both. And so I imagine there probably is some temporal variation in what happens when.
0: As far as still treatment, the drainage is obviously doing source control. Does this change our antibiotic therapy at all?
2: So um, I think it generally does. So once you start to think about pleural effusions and empyema specifically, you start to think about some of the more virulent pathogens. And so two of the pathogens we think about are Staph aureus and strep pyogenes or group A strep. So the same bacterium that causes, you know, strep pharyngitis. Interestingly, We think a lot about kids who have viral infections and then get secondary bacterial pneumonia. And there's probably a lot of reasons for that. So the viruses kind of destroy some of the respiratory epithelium. They make you not cough or not kind of clear your lungs as effectively. And they probably have some anti-immune properties as well. But one virus that does this especially well is influenza. And so we tend to see kids with influenza be the ones that come down with these really bad cases of bacterial pneumonia, often from staph aureus. And so once you see a kid with an empyema, you start to think about coverage for these more virulent organisms. Most people would at that point switch from something like ampicillin to a third generation cephalosporin in order to get kind of any resistant strep pneumo and some of that resistant H flu as well. And then, especially in an ill appearing kid with an empyema, many people would add vancomycin as well to cover for MRSA. And that you know, later on could be switched to something like clindamycin or Bactrim, but often starts as vancomycin. this is an area where you don't want to be as judicious uh, and think about the narrow spectrum antibiotics. You want to kind of bring out the big guns.
1: Now, so we talked before about, you know, possibly doing viral testing, including flu testing as we are trying to decide on an antibiotics for these patients. So definitely someone who has been flu tested before, a lot of times we will just say, okay, they're viral, likely co-infection is less likely, but then if they come back in with pneumonia, then that's when you're really stepping it up. Is that right?
2: Yeah, exactly right. So, you know, a kid who comes in with flu and has no evidence of bacterial pneumonia doesn't warrant antibiotic therapy at that time. You could argue that Oseltamivir may offer some benefit, Um, but once they come back and then are sick and have some type of complicated pneumonia, that's when you want to really worry and bring out the broad spectrum antibiotics and think about drainage.
0: I have kind of a dumb question, but can you get paranemonic effusions with viral pneumonias?
2: That's a great question. Oh, thank God. Yeah,
0: I have no no idea.
2: I will say that my guess is you probably could get a small, probably transidative effusion. It's not something that I've seen a lot. I am sure there are pneumonia experts who know the answer to this, and I unfortunately do not. But I would be very surprised if any kid with a viral pneumonia, truly viral pneumonia, got any type of empyema or loculated purulent infection. And certainly we're going to treat them as if it's bacterial, whether or not we isolate a pathogen.
1: When you have a patient who's inpatient, how do we decide they're ready to be discharged home? What 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 are the criteria or what are the things that you're looking for to say, this kid looks good enough to continue their antibiotic regimen at home or not even maybe they're good without antibiotics? I don't know.
2: I think the trajectory is the most important thing. So if a patient was admitted because they were hypoxemic or they had increased work of breathing or weren't tolerating oral intake, you kind of need to make sure that reason is better. And so generally people would say they should be stable in room air with saturations, again, above that 90 to 92% threshold off of supplemental oxygen for probably 12 to 24 hours or so. They should be tolerating oral intake, at least oral hydration, so you know that they're not going to fail at home. And then if they came in with increased work of breathing, that should be progressing in the right direction. Certainly, kids who are still quite tachypneic or have lots of retractions probably aren't ready to be discharged home. I think the one thing that is less helpful is fever. So certainly if a kid came in with low-grade fevers and all of a sudden is spiking very high persistent fevers, you want to really think hard about whether they could be developing something like an empyema and look for that. I think otherwise, it's actually very normal for kids to have persistent fevers, even with adequately treated pneumonia for several days. And so something I do try to impart to trainees and also parents is that their child may not be fever-free at the time of discharge, and that's okay.
1: How do you approach transition of antibiotics? So, I mean, if they're on a beta-lactam, it, it may be easier, but if they're on a third-generation cephalosporin, have they been you know, slowly transitioned over to, to amoxicillin before they go? Or how, how, how should pediatric hospitals approach that?
2: So I generally try to mimic whatever's been working for them as an intravenous agent. Uh, into a PO agent. So if they're on ampicillin, I would send them home on amoxicillin. If they're on vancomycin to cover MRSA, you could switch them to clindamycin or trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole. It's important to remember with clindamycin that there sometimes can be resistance. I think going back to what I talked about earlier with oral cephalosporins, you do lose some, some pneumococcal coverage with switching from ceftriaxone to ceftonier, it's probably not a huge amount. And so I would probably transition them to send them home.
1: So thanks for helping us with transitions with antibiotics as they go to be discharged. Can you tell us a little bit about duration of the antibiotics as well?
2: Yeah. So traditionally 10 days of antibiotics were used. And I think that is true for many conditions. Uh, like we think about using 10 days for otitis media in younger kids and 10 days for strep pharyngitis. And in fact, the, most recent uh, version of the national pneumonia guidelines, which are actually almost a decade old now, recommend 10 days of treatment. That said, I think that there have been some studies showing that shorter courses are likely adequate. And I would say that many institutions now are coming down on the side of seven days of treatment. There was one study showing that potentially courses of treatment as short as three days could be adequate. I take these studies with somewhat of a grain of salt going back to the point that many episodes of pneumonia in kids are viral and that we don't have a great gold standard for bacterial pneumonia. I think it's very likely that in some of these studies, a big proportion of children studied actually had a viral pathogen. And in those children, they could get zero days or they could get a hundred days and they would do the same. I think that kids with true pneumococcal pneumonia may very well need more than three days of treatment. So I think I right now consider seven days. probably the sweet spot, but hopefully we'll continue to get more evidence to, to push us towards as short as possible to make kids better.
1: In your personal practice, are there any risk factors that would pop out to you that would say you want to treat them for more than 10 days or more than seven days?
2: So traditionally, kids with complicated pneumonia, going going back again to kids with empyema or necrotizing pneumonia, are often treated for longer than seven to 10 days and sometimes closer to two weeks. And again, that's because these children are more likely to have a bacterial source and a relatively virulent bacterial source.
1: Are there any studies on the horizon, any, any types of tests or other types of treatments that you, that you're excited to come out in the next several years in terms of treatment for pneumonia or diagnostic or in use of diagnostic testing for pneumonia?
2: Yeah. So I think, I think all of this stuff, and I fear that I've raised a lot of questions and a lot of things we don't know on this podcast rather than a lot of things we do know. But I think all of that circles around the fact that we just don't know what pathogens are causing pneumonia in the kids we're seeing in front of us. So when I see this child Alva oil show up in the ER with pneumonia. I'm taking my best guess as to what she has. And procalcitonin and white blood cell count and chest X-ray, all that is kind of getting around the fact that we don't know what pathogen is causing her disease. So the things that I am most excited about are studies of direct pathogen detection, where we can say, look, your child is infected with XYZ, either bacterium or virus, and this is how we're going to treat them. That is... A super exciting idea to me I don't know how close we'll come to that but I think there's some really promising stuff out there that might push us closer to that in the next decade or so
0: it's amazing that's getting to that Star Trek Chris you'll know what that machine is I don't but tricorder there it is
2: yeah I was coming up empty on that one yeah
0: (laughs) you you have one in your office I might (laughs) I have all sorts of things in my office This is wonderful. This has been great. And I feel like pneumonia is a very common topic that comes up a lot, but this episode helped me understand and realize so many gaps that I have and tried to help fill in um, a lot of the gaps in in diagnosis and treatment. For our listeners of really all levels, what are some of your main take-home points about diagnosing, treating, or just knowing about pediatric pneumonia?
2: So I think, again, complicated topic, lots that we don't know. But in the end, we have to make a decision and we have to take good care of the kid in front of us. And so the things that I really want to impart are know that although most pneumonia is viral in origin in children, we still treat the majority of kids with pneumonia with an antibiotic, that the best antibiotic to treat kids with uncomplicated pneumonia with is amoxicillin given high dose. And that we, as a country, probably way overuse broad-spectrum agents, and it's really important to think about why we do that and what the downsides to that are. And I think the last thing is just to consider that when you see those kids with viral illnesses who then all of a sudden, a few days or a week later, develop high-spiking fevers, increased work of breathing, or hypoxemia, just think about the fact that they are at risk of developing a secondary bacterial pneumonia and evaluate them for that accordingly. Awesome. Boom. Those weren't the greatest pearls. No, I
0: think those were great. great. Awesome. This has been uh, superbly helpful. Is there anything that you would like to plug or anything that you think our listeners should check out?
2: I'm not a big plugger, never done a podcast before, but I will say the pneumonia article that you included as pre-reading for this, the Pediatrics in Review article, is probably the single best pneumonia review I've ever read. And so I would really urge everyone who I'm sure already did all the reading to reread that article and keep it with them. I think it's a great tool for teaching as well. So good job finding it.
0: Nice. Plug in the pre-reading.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: I, yeah, You were definitely a teacher's favorite growing up. Plug, in, <laughs> plug in the pre-reading.
2: No, I actually talked too much, believe it or not. <laughs> I mean, so I, I got dinged for that.
0: Trouble too. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been so great.
2: Thanks, guys. This was great. I really appreciate you having me.
1: This has been another episode of The Cribsiders. It's for the kids. Get show notes at thecribsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at Knowledge Food Formula Feeds to get our weekly show notes in your inbox.
0: We are committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at Cribsiders at gmail.com. An enormous thank you to our outstanding producer, Matt Sibillion-Cruz, for helping with this episode. Thank you for joining us tonight. I have been Justin Lee Burke. And I also want
1: to give a shout-out to our social media team who has been doing a great job, including Dr. Oh. I also want to make a shout-out to our social media team who has been doing a fantastic job, Shannon Snellgrove Snell Grove. and Dr. Crystal Nora. This has been Chris the Chew Man Chiu. Thank you and good night.
0: Hey, you've already listened to the entire episode. Now claim CME credit. Continuing education credit is provided by VCU Healthcare Continuing Education. VCU is accredited to provide continuing education for the entire healthcare team. Check it out at cribsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information and to claim credit after listening to this episode.